Hello and welcome to the Whereas Hoops podcast. I'm Noah Cohan and my usual co-host John Early is not able to make it with us today. He sends his regrets, but we have an exciting guest with us. So we wanted to go ahead and record this podcast and get it to you even in John's absence. And that guest is Tom Oates. Tom is Associate Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in the Department of American Studies at the University of Iowa with a joint appointment with the School of Journalism and Mass Communication. His interdisciplinary scholarship has appeared in journals spanning communication, sports studies, and cultural studies. He is the author of an excellent text that I just taught this semester, Football and Manliness, an unauthorized feminist account of the NFL. And he is also the co-editor of the NFL Critical and Cultural Perspectives, as well as Playing to Win, Sports, Video Games, and the Culture of Play. Tom uh, pursues research interests at the intersection of sport, media, and culture, as you can tell from those titles, focusing on how new media and neoliberalism are shaping articulations of race, gender, and sexuality around contemporary sport. His current project, which we're excited to talk to him about, talk with him about today, explores the connections between basketball with racialized and gendered meanings of space. Tom teaches courses on the historical, economic, regulatory, and ideological forces shaping media production in the United States. Welcome, Tom. Thanks. Thanks for the generous introduction. I'm glad to be here. So excited to have you here and so excited to hear more about this new project. I, I don't know a lot about it, and it sounds really cool and sounds relevant to what we're trying to do with Whereas Hoops. Mm-hmm. So maybe before we dig into that new project, though, I gave that bio, but but if you could give us a short um, sort of more narrative-based bio about your connection to sports personally and how studying it became an academic pursuit for you. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. I, uh, I was born in St. Louis. We moved when I was seven. And at that point, I was already kind of a fan of baseball. Uh, um, but uh, that year was 1982 and the Cardinals won the World Series. Uh, and I was sort of watching it from afar. Um, and also as an eight-year-old, not really allowed to stay up past the third inning. So I think the, um, you know, having the object of my desire sort of uh, so um, difficult to grasp, you know, in those days there was no ESPN. Well, there was ESPN, but I didn't have it in our house. And um, uh, there was no YouTube. There was, uh, I, I relied on clippings that my grandmother sent me um, to learn about the team. Uh, and I, you know, just really, really got into it uh, for probably four or five years, was really into baseball and then kind of um, broadened out into some other sports. Basketball became a really special obsession around the time of middle school. I re- my dad was an academic administrator. And so sometimes in the summers, I would go to campus with him. He uh, worked at one of the branch campuses of the University of Wisconsin system at the time. And um, uh, the gym was open so I could go and shoot hoops for a while. And uh, after getting tired of that, after a couple of hours, I would usually work my way over to the library and the bound periodical section and they had uh, Sports Illustrated's going back to the at least the 60s, maybe the 50s. And I would just spend hours in there pouring over these um, 
you know, old sporting events that I'd sort of read little details about, but, you know, wanted to kind of try to relive through the narrative and um, would sit on the floor and read as many of those as I could. Um, I was a Georgetown basketball fan at the time because, um, well, frankly, I like their uniforms and um, I like Patrick Ewing. And I liked uh, the fact that my dad had a sort of um, work connection with them as well. So he ran a international student exchange program that um, was also run out of Georgetown. So there would be occasional trips that he would make over there. And I think becoming a Georgetown fan was a really um, fortuitous choice in a way because it helped me see a lot of the contradictions in sports journalism and sports discourse. Um, I noticed through the late eighties and early nineties as Duke became a kind of darling of the press um, that they were described all of the institutions, Duke and Georgetown are pretty similar in a lot of respects. Uh, the basketball teams were described in almost polar opposite terms. And um, that always struck me as strange and um, kind of offensive. <laughs> and um, uh, so I, I suppose that was a sort of seed for sort of thinking about sport as a cultural force. And um, my interest in, in, in sports just as a fan it really deepened in high school. I mean, most of my friends were also very into basketball and other sports as well. And uh, we just kind of reveled in our, in our interest, um, getting deeper and deeper into it as, as much as we could. But also, we were all pretty interested in the way, I mean, most of us were Georgetown fans. Most of us recognized the ways that Georgetown were described, Georgetown players and the program in general was described in the press in ways that we thought were kind of unfair and, um, uh, you know, fueled our grievances. Um, so um, I ended up going to Georgetown for college and uh, it got even deeper there. While I was at Georgetown, um, Alan Iverson uh, matriculated and it was a big controversy on campus among alums and current students who thought that this um, player who had been in, had been recently um, released from prison um, should be enrolling at an institution like Georgetown. And, um, you know, I, I was not on that side of the argument, but I was noticing yet again the ways in which, um, you know, this little niche interest that I had um, kept kind of erupting into um, broader kinds of discourse about, you know, the, the, the purpose of the institution I attended or um, the social values that it was meant to uphold and, um, and that basketball was supposedly upholding. So um, all of that was on my mind as I went to um, graduate school. And there at graduate school, it becomes a, um, a really different um, kind of question. You have to think not just about the, the things you're interested in, but also, you know, what the conversations are that are happening in the, in the academy. 
And at that point, there wasn't, I, I don't want to suggest that nobody was talking about sports, but I really wasn't aware of these conversations. So I had gotten my, uh, I, I went to St. Louis University to get a um, master's degree in American studies. Uh, during the course of that, I realized I was more interested in media and popular culture. And so I got a PhD in uh, mass communication at the University of Iowa. Um, and my advisor at Iowa knew of my interest in sport because it, it was hard for me not to talk about it. So um, even though I didn't really consider it as an academic pursuit, I got um, um, you know, through the course of many conversations with her kind of coaxed into thinking about taking it seriously as an academic area of, of study. And just as a kind of total coincidence, um, Iowa happened to be the seat of um, uh, a program that studied sport through a cultural studies lens, one of the few places in the United States to do so. And um, so my advisor, it, you know, let me know about the courses that they were offering. And I enrolled in some of those and um, learning from Susan Burrell at Iowa and Tina Parrott at Iowa and my advisor, Judy Pollenbaum. Um, I was really kind of um, uh, convinced to pursue sport as a topic. Um, I, I still, even then, with that kind of permission structure still thought that it was maybe not a great idea <laughs> in those days there wasn't uh there weren't um conference divisions or um uh special journals dedicated to the study of sport outside of sports studies um and so it seemed like it was a real um a real niche area um, and I worried that, you know, I would kind of pigeonhole myself into something at the, you know, early in my career that maybe I would want to get out of later on. But um, as it turned out, another happy coincidence was that the uh, interest in sports really started growing in some of the other fields that I um, had affiliations with. So, you know, American studies started to take um started to take sports more seriously and 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 so did my uh home discipline of communication um so it was you know i mean i i don't want to pretend like it i went all in on sports but i i definitely did um have that interest and pursued it earlier early in my career and by the time i kind of picked my head up and looked around there were lots of other people doing it too and that um that made it easy to keep to keep going. So, um, so that's where the interest came from. Um, it was uh, kind of a kind of multi-layered, as I think it is for many of us. You know, we have a a, a personal interest in sports uh, that might might include fandom of some kind or participation as a player, but then there's also the intellectual question, and um, I feel really fortunate that things came together for me in that way, because, um, you know, I, uh, it has changed the way that I think about sports, um, you know, studying and writing about it for more than 20 years now. But, um, uh, I feel, I feel like, uh, I'm still a fan, 
Um, I'm a fan in a, in a different way. I think I'm a fan in a, in a, in a more thoughtful way now than I maybe was when I started. Um, I try to try to let my students know that, you know, the, the sort of careful thinking about the role of sports and culture is probably going to change the way you think about sports, but it doesn't have to mean that it's the end of your interest or passion about sports. It can just sort of signal to you where, where to put your energy. I tell my students the exact same thing. And actually your book is a, is a big way, a big um, sort of facilitator of, of how I do that. I mean, it's an indispensable uh, look at the NFL. I'm referring to football and manliness uh, and, and the subtitle, <laughs> an unauthorized feminist account of the NFL um, always from the get go raises the eyebrows of my students um, and they, I have plenty of students who are huge football fans, uh, men and women, and they, <laughs> they come away from the book. Uh, maybe they're still football fans, but they, they definitely um, have had their perspective um, impacted in, in one way or another by the book. I, I'm particularly enamored of the, um, the chapter on the NFL draft that you have uh, that connects to my personal biography as, as once a football fan and, and loving the NFL draft. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that you tie together, uh, the racism, uh, that surrounds it, the, the hyper-capitalism and sort of management of bodies that is connected to it. And then, and then the feminist perspective, um, really deconstructs and destabilizes students' understandings, uh, understanding of what they're consuming in, in super productive ways. So <laughs> just a note of appreciation, um, for that chapter, it, do you mind saying a few words about uh, how you came to that formulation for, for the tack you would take in the book and, and maybe a little bit about that subtitle and putting that out for out there right in the title of the book? Yeah. Um, thank you for um, those thoughts about the book. It's always nice to know that someone's reading it um, and <laughs> uh, much less appreciating it. So um, uh, it's nice to hear the, um, uh, the subtitle was actually the suggestion of uh, my editor, Don Durante, um, who uh, noticed that phrase in a uh, in the introduction. So I, I, I mentioned that, you know, um, there are lots and lots of stories, narratives about the National Football League that are authorized by the league, uh, either... Um, either put out by the league itself through NFL films or, um, uh, or, you know, through spokespeople for the league through to journalists um, or through corporate partners, right. Who want to um, promote the image of the league in a particular way. Um, and what I wanted to do was not, you know, uh, I don't understand myself as, as, declaring the authoritative truth about the NFL, but I'm giving an, un- an unauthorized narrative about, um, about the league, uh, a competing narrative, one that intervenes in that narrative and tries to redirect it in some ways. So um, it was, mo- that um, redirection was motivated by my interest in feminist scholarship um, and particularly um, black feminist scholarship, which, um, I encountered in graduate school and became, uh, you know, it was a real, 
paradigm shifting, life changing experience to encounter that scholarship and that thinking. Um, and uh, I think it was Carol Stabile, who is the series editor, who mentioned early on in our discussions about the possibility of publishing the book with that series, um, that wouldn't it be great to have a uh, feminist reading of the NFL? I mean, what would that look like? Um, and, and things like that had you know, been attempted before. Um, Mariah Burton Nelson wrote a book in the late 1990s. Um, the Stronger Women Get, The More Men Love Football, I think was the title. Um, but that was more of a popular press work, um, really strong analysis, but um, didn't really bring feminist scholarship, especially black feminist scholarship to the forefront. Um, and that's what I wanted to do with the book. The chapter on the draft grew out of my dissertation. Um, I was in a class with Susan Burrell, and um, it, it was another happy coincidence of having to pick a paper topic in March <laughs> and um, knowing that the NFL was, the draft was on the horizon. It takes place in April every year. So people looking to do uh, semester, end of semester projects, that's, the timing's good for you if you're still thinking about it. Um, and, you know, as I got into thinking about the NFL draft, um, you know, I'd watched it casually as a fan, but um, I was just amazed at the, it, you know, the extent of the media infrastructure surrounding the draft. Um, just, you know, dozens of magazines and uh, not now websites um, uh, devoted to predicting what the draft was going to be and the very fact that it was even on television just seemed weird to me. You know, it's basically a committee meeting um, in which there's no live athletic competition. Uh, if the athletes are present, it's only the first round picks and they don't do anything except walk up on the stage and put a hat on. So, you know, why is this on television? I was sort of curious about that. And what I discovered, of course, was a lot of it had to do with the fact that ESPN was just getting its feet at that moment and was desperate for any kind of connection to the NFL at all. And in fact, when they proposed it to the, to the um, team owners, uh, they unanimously rejected it at first and had to be um, talked into it by Chet Simmons, who they knew from his affiliation with ABC sports um, for years before moving to ESPN. Um, and the first, you know, the first draft that they televised was a kind of shoestring operation. They didn't know how much longer it would, if they would do it again the next year they did. And then, um, you know, in 1987, uh, ESPN develops a, a relationship with the NFL where they can actually show games. But at that point, the draft is already, pretty well established as a draw. And so they, they double down on it and um, it becomes another sort of uh, convenient node in the football calendar. You know, it's, this is a couple of months after the Super Bowl is wrapped up and the Pro Bowl and the awards have been divvied out and baseball's just starting up and uh, the NBA and NHL playoffs are just about to begin or in some cases have already begun at that point. And here comes the draft to remind everybody about the um, really important place that football has in the media calendar. And 
Uh, it's today broadcast live on two networks. I think it's maybe the only sporting event um, in the, you know, definitely the only NFL event to be broadcast live on two channels at the same time. Um, it draws tens of millions of viewers. Uh, it seems to be interest seems to be growing rather than diminishing. Um, a lot of that has to do with the way that the, the league presents it. But what I was interested in particularly was how um, the draft is, and this is not my original observation. A lot of people have made this observation in passing that, you know, it, it has a lot of um, correspondence with like a beauty pageant or, uh, you know, some people refer to it as a meat market. It's um, uh, players' bodies are really carefully studied and picked apart and described and their different bodily attributes are admired and assessed and their future productive potential is discussed as well. And, um, you know, that just seemed kind of, kind of interesting to me that, you know, 70% of these bodies are, um, are African-American and, um, you know, the, the people doing the assessing and commenting both in the, in the uh, sort of upper echelons of, of the NFL, but also in the, um, uh, among the, uh, among the journalists, uh, covering it are, are largely white. So, um, you know, what, what, what interested me ultimately is that the, these sort of looking practices that, um, prevail in the draft about, sort of thinking about these bodies, perusing these bodies, men perusing other men's bodies, thinking about their productive potential. Um, this is not the first time that this has happened in American history. And um, it has some deep and kind of disturbing historical resonances, which um, I tried to, to point out in that chapter. So but there's lots of other things in the book as well that I think are, are, are sort of, um, you know, uh, the, the, don't um, occur at first glance, I think. Um, so one thing I've been really interested in, this is true of basketball too, by the way, but bas or football coaches will, um, uh, if they're successful at all, um, they usually have a second career as a kind of um, leadership consultant, either writing books about organizational leadership or the workplace or um, giving speeches, motivational speeches. Um, uh, often they're in the speakers bureau. Um, and uh, I just thought that was strange as well. Like why are football coaches whose workplace is one of the most unusual and strange workplaces in all of the United States uh, should become these sort of representative figures dispensing advice about, you know, how to organize, you know, the local office depot or, <laughs> or a um, tax accountant's office, right? Um, I thought that that was tied up in questions about masculinity and uh, helped us get to the bottom of some of the ways that gender and race inform ideas that seem to be disconnected from gender and race, like the workplace or, um, you know, worker productivity, or, um, uh, you know, how to sort of uh, be a savvy investor. Those kinds of things seem like sort of neutral um, skills that uh, 
we might learn, you know, by actively seeking them out. But in fact, I think football is one of those places where they kind of come in through the back door and also help us see the ways in which race, gender, and other kinds of ideologies are tied up with um, those ways, the ways of thinking that, that promote those kinds of ideas. Yeah, obviously basketball is a sport that has some some major differences from football. It's, uh, you know, there's less violence, uh, less of a question about head injury specifically. Mm -hmm. Many more women play basketball than than play football. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's also a lot of those similarities in terms of, you know, at the the upper echelons in the NBA, the workforce is is majority black, that the draft is a huge deal and and the bodies aren't measured in exactly the same way, but they are measured and there's a lot of that Mm -hmm. same sort of feeling of the slave market that that you can get from the way the white evaluators are talking about these black bodies on on sort of uh, pseudo scientific terms almost mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. your your new project is is in that in that other realm of basketball so so tell us a little bit more about how you went from doing all this scholarship on football and the NFL specifically to what what you're doing now in relation to basketball yeah well um i mentioned that when i was in college and the period after college and still today, I was uh, really into basketball as, as a fan, just sort of interested in um, uh, watching and um, consuming basketball. I also played, you know, casually pick up basketball in those days. And I'm sort of starting up again now that my daughter is old enough and interested enough to, to want to play. Um, but um one thing I was particularly interested in in the mid to late 1990s was the emergence of this new marketing strategy. I didn't really think of it as a marketing strategy at the time, but um, it was um, this mixtape tour, this uh, sort of um, elevation of uh, playground basketball, street ball, as it was being branded. And it, it seemed to you know, it had been this thing that had existed for decades and, and I had been aware of it, but suddenly it seemed to be everywhere. It was, you know, in um, shoe campaigns for uh, this brand called And One, which really built its entire brand around this notion of connecting its brand with the, with the playground and the playground legends rather than NBA players. Um, uh, Nike, uh, adopted a lot of that same aesthetic and um, uh, Adidas tried to um, uh, promote itself in those terms as well, mostly in Europe. Um, And uh, there were these global tours of uh, playground basketball players. These are players who may or may not have played in college. Um, They rarely played in the NBA, but a few of them did for a little bit. Um, but they were incredibly skillful players, uh, and they play a kind of, you know, a version of basketball that's more fluid, fast breaking, improvisational, um, than a a typical refereed game. Um, there are referees in, um, uh, playground tournaments, but, uh, the sort of rules by which the games are policed are loosened in order to allow for more sort of one-on-one dueling and occasional celebrating after, uh, a particularly good play, which doesn't necessarily have to be a basket. It could be just a a sort of one-on-one duel in which, uh, 
the player with the ball crosses over the defender and makes the defender falls fall down. That's the kind of thing that we get a, a giant response in a in a playground basketball setting. Um, so I became really interested in how this sort of form of basketball had suddenly burst into the mainstream and um, seemed to be everywhere in video games, advertisements. Um, as I mentioned, a couple of those players, Rafer Alston, AKA uh, Skip to My Lou um, from the And One mixtape, um, actually did attend Fresno State and then did play for a few years in the NBA. Um, so, uh, and at the same time, you had players like Allen Iverson and others who um, were, you know, coming up through the more conventional uh, routes to the NBA, but clearly had a, um, a, the playground had a deep influence on their game in ways that many commentators found distressing. <laughs> and I found that, I found that really interesting too. Um, so um it was the first thing I ever wrote on in graduate school, actually about sports. The first, the first sports related thing I ever wrote on was about um, this and one streetball tour, but um, I, I kind of didn't know what to do with it at that point. I set it aside and then, you know, eventually started thinking about the draft and working on that project instead. But um, uh, as I was, working on the football book and thinking about what to do next, I had been reading a lot of American studies literature on um, space and place and the way in which space and place is contested and negotiated with, you know, huge consequences, especially for communities of color. So, I mean, a, a big influence on me was uh, George Lipsitch's um, How Racism Takes Place, uh, St. Louisan himself, um, and, and actually, a chapter in there about St. Louis and race and space, um, really worth checking out, especially it's, it's about the Rams and um, their uh, building of the dome downtown. Um, so I was really interested in some of that literature and it's it kind of dawned on me that um, these uh, part of the aesthetic of these street ball tours and these video games and things like that uh, traded on these ideas about what these spaces were like, right? And what these spaces allowed uh, for in a particular kind of fantasy. So it's a, a kind of reconstitution of a, you know, a, a kind of space that has a really long history in American culture, this idea of a, of a, of a place apart, a place where the rules don't quite apply. Um, has a similar kind of function to the uh, frontier in the in the 19th century in the American imagination, right? This kind of place where men can be men um, and can engage one another in a kind of one-upsmanship um, outside of the sort of strict boundaries of um, of uh, polite society. And of course, that's all deeply steeped in racial ideologies and um, class ideologies. And this was only, you know, I think further um, uh, illustrated to me when after college, I did, I, I did some volunteer teaching for a year in um, the South Bronx in New York City. And I remember telling friends of mine that I was, you know, that this was my plan and just being met with just a 
like so much concern for my safety. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, it kind of crossed my mind, but I hadn't really thought that much about it. Um, but I was, you know, dealing with people who were, who were telling me that, you know, they worried that they were never going to see me again or something like that. And, um, you know, I, I went there and I taught and of course I learned that it's a community like, like most communities where there are families trying to raise their children. And, you know, um, there are, there are problems in those communities in that particular community where I lived. Um, uh, but, you know, people are by and large trying to, trying to deal with those. And the, and the danger that I faced in that community was nothing like it had been imagined by many of my friends. Um, and so I started thinking about the ways in which people would get so, uh, get that image, that idea about those spaces in their heads, right? And, and how was it that, um, you know, when, when I asked friends to come, to come visit, or maybe, you know, we would meet at where I lived and then go somewhere else, um, they were visibly nervous to do so, right? Um, uh, where did that nervousness come from, right? Most of them had never been to a neighborhood like that before. So I, I, it occurred to me that they were getting most of those messages from uh, media, advertising, hip hop videos, uh, movies, um, and of course, there's a, a vast literature on that, which is, um, has been really influential on me. Um, and so uh, I started reading, you know, but more recently, I came back to that. And so it was kind of, again, a connection between my own personal experiences and um, the reading I was doing, which uh, didn't line up in any kind of conscious way. But as, as I maybe more of a subconscious way. Um, uh, it started to, um, started to come together for me. So I'm really interested in the ways that uh, playground basketball sort of emerges as a, uh, as a cultural practice. It um, uh, circulates in um, segregated black communities. Um, for different kinds of purposes, community building, um, uh, uh, ways to develop spaces where uh, um, capitalist exchange can happen, but also just entertainment. Um, and then how it also gets sort of taken up in um, mainstream discourses, first by journalists who are sort of interested in it as a kind of aesthetic expression of basketball, and as I argue in the book, a kind of return to a, a period where journalists were the authority on what they were seeing, right? So um, when Red, you know, uh, when Grant, when Rice and Red Grange are describing um, what's happening on a baseball field, people kind of have to take their word for it because uh, unless you were in the stadium, there was no way to know for sure. Um, and that, of course, gave, the, gave those writers all kinds of poetic license. Um, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, journalists again discover a sphere, the playground, where they can have that kind of authority again. And, um, you know, there's two great sort of masterpieces of sports journalism written about, uh, about playground basketball in the early 1970s, Pete Axelm's The City Game and Rick Tellender's um, Heaven is a Playground. Um, 
and then you know uh, by the 1990s corporations become interested in it as a kind of symbol that they can circulate for different kinds of purposes and video game producers see the setting of the urban playground as a as a place sort of you know not unlike um immortal combat a kind of exotic location where you can where, where men can duel other men right at least the digital avatars of of men can duel one another um and become you know gain prestige in one way or another but it's also to this day being used in you know uh, at the grassroots community level for other kinds of purposes as well. And um, uh, I just think all that tension is really interesting to think about. So, Yeah, and I, a lot of the things you're saying have obvious intersections with, with Whereas Hoops, uh, the project, because as you can imagine in talking to people in the park, in, in studying the history of the park, it's pretty clear that the reason that there are no basketball hoops in Forest Park is because... Um, white people assume that uh, that will cause black people, black men specifically to congregate and that that, that black men in these stereotypes are hyper-violent, are mm -hmm. criminals, mm -hmm. um, you know, all kinds of racist stereotypes about what black people and black men specifically are like. And, and that's the reason they don't have hoops is to, to be a deterrent. And a, and a quick glance at the, the uh, city's website where they display all the public basketball facilities that they provide in city parks will show you the same bias because the Del Mar divide separates the city north and south. Uh, the Af African-American population traditionally lives north of this uh, street, Del Mar Avenue, and uh, the white population traditionally lives beneath it. And almost all of the public basketball facilities in the entire city are north in the, mm -hmm. in the area where black people live. So you can see um, just from a, a cursory glance that there's some some uh, racist ideas about playground basketball that determine the, the landscape of the physical landscape of St. Louis. And, and what John and I are trying to do in this project is to change that. But I'm curious, um, since you lived in St. Louis as an adult, as you mentioned, when you uh, attended St. Louis University, what your intersection with the basketball landscape of St. Louis was like, uh, whether that's the, the playground game, uh, whether you noticed the lack of facilities in Forest Park, or maybe the college game at St. Louis University, or what, what, what was your interaction with basketball in St. Louis like at that time? Yeah, you know, um, it's the kind of thing that uh, what, once I heard about your project and, and started following it a bit, I was like, oh, of course, <laughs> of course, that's the case. But, but uh, I had never really noticed that before. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, I didn't go to Forest Park to play basketball. I guess, you know, I just, I, I didn't really play much outside in St. Louis for various reasons. One, it's oppressively hot in the, <laughs> for like eight, seemingly eight months of the year. Mm -hmm. And um there was also the, I, I forget what they call it at St. Louis University, the Simon Center, maybe. It's like the rec center there. Uh, and it was like many such facilities. It had, you know, eight to 10 hardwood basketball courts that I had access to for free. So I played there, you know, pretty regularly, but um, I didn't really seek out, um, I didn't seek out playgrounds to play on in the, in, in the city. Uh, I was only in St. Louis for two years. Um, so maybe I would have otherwise, but you know, that, that St. Louis is a, is, is obviously a very segregated place. Uh, it is also the kind of place where, you know, uh, uh, 
certainly people of my race and class tend not to talk much about the segregation, at least when I was growing up. So it wasn't something that was, um, you know, my attention had been drawn to. Um, uh, Forest Park was a place that I visited all the time, but usually, you know, to go to the zoo or, um, or fly kites on Art Hill or something like that. Um, and it just, you know, the, the absence of basketball hoops just um, didn't really register with me. So I think that, you know, uh, it's the project you're working on is just such a great example of um, how a simple intervention can um, uh, sort of help you recognize something that uh, maybe was obvious, uh, certainly was obvious to many other people in St. Louis um, for a long, long time, but um, kind of somehow managed to fly under the radar. And um, um so, you know, I, uh, but I played at the, si the Simon Center, I think is what it was called. It's the, it still has that name, uh, probably, but it's, uh, I played intramural hoops there. I remember playing against uh, Jason Tatum's dad, played at St. Louis U, and uh, I think he redshirted for a year or something. So he was eligible for intramural hoops. <laughs> so our team, uh, our team came up against his and, uh, we didn't last long. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Were you there? Were you around for the year where Romar was the coach and they, he took the team to the uh, NCAA tournament? Yeah. And Larry Hughes was on that mm, team. Right. Larry Hughes. Yeah. yeah. He was a, a local star, later played with Iverson at, in Philadelphia, the Flight Brothers, as I recall. Um, yeah. There was, th those were good teams um, uh, in those years. And, you know, exciting to watch and uh you know um st louis has a great basketball tradition which you know because there haven't been traditional college powerhouses and no nba franchise in st louis for decades now um you know i think is is, is surprises some people but um but there's a really strong basketball tradition in the city and um um, so that's yet another reason why, you know, drawing attention to the, 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 the sort of landmark spaces in, um, in the city and, and, uh, the ways in which they have been shaped for some of the population and not all is, um, a really important, a really important intervention. Yeah. It's been a real, uh, pleasure, um, researching that, that basketball heritage, you know, back to the the 1904 world's fair and the Olympics and the, mm -hmm. all the teams that were here for that. And, and through the, the period of pro basketball in St. Louis, the NBA teams, but also the spirits of St. Louis, the ABA team mm -hmm. and the prep stars, uh, the prep scene that you mentioned has, has been strong and produced lots of pros. And, and our, our hope, John and I, I think is that um, if this, if our efforts are, are rewarded and, and hoops are built in, um, in Forest Park, we'd love to get, um, Jason Tatum, whose father you played against in intramurals, or Bradley Beal, or Nafisa Collier, one of those high-level yeah. pro players to come and be part of the celebration, because I think that that could show um, how meaningful it it would be. So that that's a goal of ours going forward. But speaking yeah. of 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 courts, having played um, some pickup hoops yourself, uh, we always like to ask our guests uh, if they could design their dream sort of uh, outdoor basketball facility. What are the must-haves? What kind of a court setup are you looking for? What are the things surrounding the court that you feel are important? What What are the amenities that you want to see? 
Well, I have sort of two answers to that question. One is the um, what I kind of expect to find um, in a in a in a good outdoor court, and and what my dream court looks like. <laughs> All right. Um, so you know, uh, uh, a, a nicely refurbished, regularly refurbished and repaved surface is, I think, really important. Um, especially, you know, as I've started playing again, um, with my daughter, uh, outdoors, uh, I, I, I'm at the age where ruptured Achilles, uh, (laughs) show up in my timeline with more frequency than I would like. Uh, and so they're on my mind and, um, uh, you know, making sure that the surface is, is clean and smooth is a way is an accessibility issue for those courts. So it makes it possible for more people to, to use them. Um, I think that's really important. I think that um, I've noticed the nets project that you've been doing. Um, It really, you know, was important in my own selection of an outdoor court. If there was a net or not a net, it's just very difficult to play. Um, unless you can take it to the hole every time, which I can't do <laughs> to play on a court without it, without a net. And it's just much less satisfying. Um, uh, I think lights are uh, a really important amenity, especially in a place like St. Louis where the weather does allow you to play into uh, November and even into December when it gets dark pretty early, but when um, activity would likely be highest um, after, after the workday. Um, my dream court, and I came across this uh, at, a, at a conference at the University of Oregon. Uh, Oregon's athletic facilities are dazzling, of course. I mean, the presence of Nike and Nike's money uh, maybe make that inevitable. But, um, but you know, it, it rains a lot in Oregon. And one thing that I noticed that they had done a great job of is um, to cover those those spaces and um in covering you know like i mean just with a roof um so mm-hmm. no no walls or anything like that um and doing that allowed them to use much higher quality material um on the surface um i saw it mostly with tennis courts but um it got me thinking about basketball as well um that uh something to keep the elements off would allow for at least one and maybe a few hardcore outdoor hoops, um, even temporary hardcore out or hardcore um, outdoor hoops. I think would be uh, would be a really valuable thing. Again, that's an accessibility issue for some people, and um, uh, it's just it's just nice to play on wood. Sometimes, I mean, it's 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 always fun to play uh, on asphalt as well if the asphalt is in decent condition. But, um, but, you know, uh, so some of the um, more uh, commercialized uh, playground spaces now, like the Rucker Park in New York City, they'll bring in um, uh, hardwood for their tournaments now. So, um, uh, you know, I just think that it's, um, it's possible, right? It's probably not something... It's probably a, a few steps away, <laughs> considering that there's not even a hoop in uh, in Forest Park, but um, um, it could be a really nice kind of space. So, yeah, I'm glad to hear you mentioned accessibility. That's something that's important. I think 
we'd love to see a facility that has some some full courts for really serious games to take place on but then also off to the side some small half courts so that people who just want to go and shoot a little bit can also have some time yeah. Um, so that's something we're really interested in. And, and the aesthetics thing you mentioned, you know, John, uh, who can't be with us today, but he's a visual artist. And, you know, there's a lot of really brilliant um, artwork happening surrounding basketball facilities, not just the, the nets uh, that you mentioned, the new craft artists in action, which is a really cool project. You all should check that out. Um, but also um, court murals. Um, there, are, there are whole Instagram accounts dedicated to different court murals you can see mm -hmm. from around the world. And I think doing something that... Um, celebrates the black community of St. Louis, but also just celebrates sort of St. Louis identity and, and, and the, the incredible public space that is Forest Park would be really cool and something that we're definitely uh, sort of daydreaming about as we think about what could happen for these courts. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for, for being on the pod with us. It's been really uh, great to talk to you and we're, I'm so excited about this new project you've got um, coming out. I can't wait to read it and, uh, who knows, maybe we'll do a follow-up appearance <laughs> when that happens. Uh, but I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. The lace lady traveled with grace, baby. I can't afford to cover the course. Of course, maybe settle that one in court. Cause judging by the basics, y'all already comfortable stuck up in the matrix.